0: Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
1: You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you
2: will
3: atone.
2: Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good
3: Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarin from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
2: Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows.
4: Welcome to the broadcast for Sunday, February the 13th. 2011, and um, we've got a uh, an action-packed uh, program for you tonight. A little bit later, uh, at about 15 minutes before midnight, Oxford-educated investigative author Joseph Farrell will take the stage. It's been a while since I've talked to Joseph. Uh, he wrote a, um, a series of books, um, the, uh, the Giza Death Star and... Uh, Uh, the Giza Death Star Destroyed. I think there was one called the Giza Death Star Deployed. Uh, He's got a brand new website and it looks fabulous. But we're not talking about the Giza Death Star tonight. Joseph will be here to tell us about Lyndon Baines Johnson connection to the JFK assassination. You know, when you see that historic photo of LBJ being sworn in aboard Air Force One, mere hours after JFK was slain standing beside LBJ as he's being sworn in is the first lady the former first lady blood over her pink uh, pink jacket and suit and he always looked suspicious to me LBJ in that photograph as if somehow he got what he wanted This was vindication. Uh, And now along comes Joseph Farrell with this book uh, talking about LBJ. And now this guy was a ruthless politician. I mean, he played politics the dirty way. Uh, I don't think it's an unfair characterization. (laughs) And he ran a pretty uh, corrupt uh, political machine in Texas as well. I guess the question is, would they kill for him? We're we're going to find out. Anyway, Farrell says that it was sort of a coalescence of interests. Uh, LBJ, the military-industrial complex, the CIA, um, which all sort of culminated in the uh, the assassination of JFK. So he'll be along uh, just before midnight to talk about uh, LBJ and the assassination of JFK. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, will drop by in a little less than a half hour. She now joins us the second Sunday of every month, a leading expert on the paranormal supernatural, author of over 40 books. And uh, tonight she's presenting her latest investigation, which took place in Thornwood Castle, an actual castle in the United States out on the West Coast. I think... Not a lot of castles in the U.S., not like uh, Britain. Uh, but I think uh, to qualify as a castle, you just need to have a parapet. And uh, Thornwood certainly has one of those. So she spent an entire night there alone. This is a, a manor, this 27,000-square-foot, 40-room manor on the uh, the shores of uh, American Lake near Tacoma, Washington, was the scene or was the setting for a Stephen King miniseries, I believe, which ran on ABC uh, about a dozen years ago. It was called Rose Red, and about this evil, intelligent house that preyed on its inhabitants and fed off their life force and so forth. Anyway, when you look at uh, Thornwood Castle, I've seen pictures of it. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful, you know, stately grounds, beautiful gardens, wonderfully appointed uh, grounds. and It's a, it's a nice-looking house. It's not scary-looking, but it's just chock full of ghosts, apparently. And Rosemary actually spent an entire night there all alone. I don't know if there was like, the house was completely empty, but she said, she told me, I was there all alone one night and she's going to tell us what happened. That's, uh, as I say, coming up in a half an hour. In just a few moments, we'll uh, be joined by John Truman Wolf, who is a banking industry expert. And uh, we hear all this talk that, you know, we're out of the recession and uh, things are starting to look up. I wouldn't be so sure about that myself. Uh, a lot of stimulus money is still working its way through the, um, through the system. And uh, I think that is in part it's an artificial recovery. It's a jobless recovery as far as I can tell. Anyway. If we go back to uh, 2008, 2009, when this whole thing started, when there was this credit freeze and banks weren't lending money, John Truman Wolf says the whole thing was engineered. And, in fact, the title of his new book is Crisis by Design, the untold story of the global financial coup. That's right, coup, as in coup d'etat. He'll tell us who's doing it and why, ostensibly, or... Primarily, rather, he says, or will tell you that it's about destroying the U.S. dollar and destroying American hegemony, bringing America to its knees. And uh, we'll find all about the uh, all about the Bank for International Settlements, which is in Switzerland, and is apparently above the lies as they have their own army. They're behind this, and we'll find out uh, more. the uh, The mighty Aphrodite. My lovely bride and our two boys are down in New Jersey. I took them to the airport on Thursday. Uh, wonderful Billy Bishop uh, Airport, the uh, the porter, uh, the new porter terminal there. Wonderful, wonderful, ridiculous one uh, hundred yard ferry ride, <laughs> uh, which soon will be replaced by some sort of a pedestrian channel. Uh, can't happen too soon, but it's a wonderful uh, airport anyway. Uh, so they went down to Succasana, Succasana, New Jersey, which is a beautiful part of the state. It is the garden state. It gets a bad, a raw deal, right? We think of New Jersey, we think of Newark or Trenton. But uh, New Jersey, aside from certain areas of Newark, it's, it's gorgeous. I live there in a heartbeat. Beautiful rolling hills and forests and... You know, there are more bears in in New Jersey than anywhere else in the country. Anyway, so uh, the mighty Aphrodite and the boys have been down there since Thursday. And I tell you, I was looking, I was saying, I'm going to enjoy myself when they're away. I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to watch whatever I want on TV. I'm going to read. Are you kidding? I tell you, 20 minutes, they're gone. And I'm already, I'm just like climbing the walls. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm reverting back to my bachelorhood days. You know, I'm eating over the sink. I'm using the same bowl and fork and, uh, and, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, it's bad. I stopped bathing. No, okay. Now oh, say, I'm <laughs> now that's too much information. Anyway, the point is I miss them. If they're listening, because we do carry down in New Jersey, if you're listening, Mighty Aphrodite, and North and Zach, who should be in bed, please, please come home. I, I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression. I didn't drive them away. They went down... Uh, to visit uh, uh, the mighty Aphrodite he has family down there her Theo Paul and her Thea Katina and her cousin Jackie who is also expecting twins uh, so uh, our prayers and uh, best wishes for a wonderful uh, a wonderful pregnancy and delivery all right come back
5: come back please
4: I'm a mess all right we'll get to John Truman Wolf on the conspiracy show when we come back my name is Richard Serrett I'm lonely
3: Keeping an eye on the New World Order This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett From Zuma Radio, AM 740 To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 Or toll free, 1-866-740-4740 The dollar and much of America's
4: economic autonomy may be the next two endangered species created by the global economic crisis. And the two events may actually be linked, according to my next guest. He says the recent global economic crisis didn't just happen. It was created. So says John Truman Wolf, a banking industry expert, author of Crisis by Design, the untold story of the global financial crisis coup. John, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
1: Uh, I'm terrific, Richard. Thanks so much for having me.
4: Well, you mentioned, uh, you talk about the financial crisis and, and uh, most people are operating under the assumption that we're actually getting out from under this morass, that things are starting to return sort of back to normal. Uh, you know, the, the car companies are paying back their loans and so forth. Not. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Are we getting out of this?
1: Well, certainly there are some statistics that are that are moving up uh, there's no denying that. That said, I think the basis of this crisis is still very, very much with us. Uh, if I look at it from a from a U.S. perspective, um, you know, the government is upside down uh, this year. This year alone, one and a half trillion dollars. Uh, Richard, these figures are mind-numbing. If you spent a uh, dollar every second, it would take you 32,000 years to spend a trillion dollars. Um, and uh, the US government is upside down this year alone, one and a half trillion, uh, followed by budget deficits the prior two years of the Obama administration uh, uh, of about the same amount, just very slightly less than that. So uh, we're continuing to walk down a, uh, a treacherous road, uh, the elections in November, um, uh, bringing uh, Republicans into the House of Representatives on a platform of, of you know people that were, uh, opposed to government debt, uh, came out with a budget here last week, and it was weak. It was limp, uh, looking to cut uh, you know fifty, sixty, seventy billion dollars out of a out of a budget of three and a half trillion. So, um, uh, the and I'm speaking more from a U.S. perspective, although this financial crisis is is international and. Um, I was in Toronto uh, a couple of weeks ago um, and gave a gave a speech up there. And uh, I don't follow the Canadian economy as closely as I do the U.S. economy, but was uh, I, th- I thought it was interesting that the Canadian dollar is now trading higher than the U.S. dollar, um, which which is an indicator that the, that the Canada's economy is is certainly stronger than ours. More basic than that, to that than that, uh, Richard, is the simple fact that. Uh, you know, as as the title of the book says, this was a crisis by design. It was caused. It was planned. This did not just happen. It was not just a result of a bunch of mortgage-backed securities or subprime loans. Uh, not that those weren't factors, but they weren't the cause. Uh, the purpose of the financial crisis was, and is because it is still in progress um, and roiling through Europe as we speak. But the, but the primary purpose of the financial crisis was to take down the United States and the United States dollar as the stable point, as the icons of uh, international finance. And in the midst of that chaos, replace them with uh, what Timothy Geithner, when he was president of the New York Fed a couple of years ago, called a GMA. Geithner called for a GMA. I'm a former banker, I'd never heard of this term. It stands for a Global Monetary Authority. And you peel the onion on that term, it basically means a financial dictator for the planet.
4: You're talking about a precursor to a a, a global currency?
1: Well, uh, uh, a global currency is certainly certainly part of it. The, The Global Monetary Authority that was put in place, most folks don't know this, Richard, but on April 2nd of 2009, in fact, the Global Monetary Authority was put in place at the G20 meeting in London. Uh, that entity was created and called the Financial Stability Board. And it was placed inside of the Bank for International Settlements, the bank that most people have never heard of. <coughs> Pardon me, the Bank for International Settlements is the central bankers central bank. So the Bank of Canada, the US Fed, the Bank of England, Italy, Japan, etc., are all members of this bank. And this financial stability board that was created by the um, G20 uh is now dictating policy to the central banks of the world the crisis was call caused by a, uh, a a rule put out by the bank for international settlements a few years ago that was the linchpin to this crisis and then again to repeat uh, as there was financial turmoil uh, uh, intentionally created, then the "quote" solution is an international financial body.
4: So you create a global m-
1: currency uh, is 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 definitely part of this and is rolling out as we speak. The uh, the so-called SDR, the that stands for Special Drawing Rights, that's the currency of the International Monetary Fund.
4: John uh, Truman Wolf is uh, with us, the author of Crisis by Design: The Untold Story of the Global Financial Coup and What You Can Do About It. So, in other words. The uh, they and we'll, we'll um, f- focus on who they are exactly in a moment, but th- this disease was created in order to offer the cure, and the cure was the global monetary authority.
1: That's absolutely
4: correct. Okay, so who created the disease specifically?
1: Well, uh, players, and I, you know, I go through name and names uh, there in the book, in, in various chapters, there's a whole chapter on Goldman Sachs uh but key players uh the book starts with uh Greenspan's ascendancy to the throne of the Federal Reserve Bank in the late 80s um he was very instrumental in this uh other players included Robert Rubin uh Larry Summers who was uh, President Obama's uh ch- you know chief economic advisor until a couple of months ago um, t- today Ben Bernanke and Timothy Geithner sit on the board of the Bank for International Settlement uh, Greenspan sat on that board and was instrumental in the activities of that bank uh, when he was chairman of the Fed. Uh, bear in mind, Richard, that the Bank for International Settlements is above the law. Uh, by that I mean that while it is located in Basel, Switzerland, uh, Swiss law does not affect it. Uh, its employees are immune from prosecution. Uh, it has its own military slash police force on the property. Um, and this entity, which was uh, Hitler's bank, frankly, this was a Nazi, but this was a bank that facilitated the financial transactions of the third Reich, um, is now, uh, with this financial stability board, uh, basically the financial Darth Vader of planet Earth. It sounds very conspiratorial, but this is what's occurred, and this is what's going on uh, right now.
4: So this is the central bankers' central bank. So how right. is it... That the Bank for International Settlements, through the Global Monetary Authority, is going to bring America and the U.S. dollar to its knees?
1: Well, uh, they're basically controlling, they're issuing the Financial Stability Board, uh, which is chaired by a guy named Mario Draghi, uh, who was a former Goldman Sachs executive. Uh, interestingly, he left Goldman just at the time Henry, right before the financial crisis, uh, at the time Henry Paulson came. Uh, down to Washington, became the Secretary of Treasury in Washington. A doggy left Goldman Sachs, became the chairman of the Central Board, uh, Central Bank of Italy, and then became chairman of this Financial Stability Board. Uh, they're dictating policy now to the central banks of the world, and central banks, as you probably know and your listeners know, uh, are the institutions in a country that issue the amount of money. Uh, they control interest rates and uh, in effect control the economies of the countries in which they operate and control an economy you pretty much control a country
4: as thomas jefferson warned us
1: as thomas jefferson warned us
4: more dangerous than standing and, uh, armies
1: Yes, one of, the, one of his great quotes and there are many
4: so uh, when i think of a central bank or let's say the, the federal reserve and we're familiar with g edward griffin's uh, the creature from jekyll island the idea that these central banks, uh, uh, the Fed, uh, gets a call from the uh, the White House, and they need um, you know twenty billion dollars for some sort of a stimulus package, and so they they get the uh, uh, the Treasury Department to churn out twenty billion uh, in in bank notes. Uh, so they've created money virtually out of thin air at very little cost to them, whatever it costs in ink and paper, which they loan to the U.S. government uh, at interest. Uh, and then through the miracle of fract- uh, fractional banking, uh, you know they can inflate the money supply. People take some of that uh, stimulus money to the bank, and uh, the bank can then loan out, you know, let's say nine point nine times that amount, and so on, and so it goes. Uh, so this is how my this is my understanding of anyway how how the central banks um, man- manipulate the money supply, and also they monopolize the issuance of currency so this central bank that is the central bank of the central banks the Bank for International Settlements again how are they going to manipulate the uh, the, the money supply
1: well um, uh, one as I say the, the the unit inside the Bank for International Settlements this financial stability board is dictating policy to the central banks. Um, and uh, to get very specific about it you have um, effects uh, such as uh, the Bank for International Settlements setting capital requirements. Now, uh, the, uh, capital, for uh, not to get into a big accounting lesson because it gets very confusing, but capital is essentially a bank's reserve. Um, and if the Bank for International Settlements uh, dictates that capital now must be um, uh, 10% of assets instead of 8%, just for argument's sake, um, then uh, less lending goes on. Credit markets get tight. Um, and economies uh, suffer.
4: Well, that's what um, happened the last time, right? We had a, a, a freeze in, uh, in, uh, in loan. Uh, le- banks were no longer able to lend money.
1: Well, you're exactly, you're exactly correct. But what, but what started that, Richard, was the fact that, uh, I mean, there's a whole series of events with Greenspan and Paulson and so forth again, which, uh, which I cover in the book, which leads up to the point where the banks on planet Earth are pregnant with these mortgage-backed securities. I mean, there are billions upon billions upon billions of them, and banks are holding them in their uh, assets, you know, as assets. Then the Bank for International Settlements uh, promulgates, puts out a rule called mark-to-market, which basically says this. It says that if your neighbor's uh, mortgage-backed securities, um, you know, are are, are now selling for $0.10 on the dollar, think Lehman Brothers during the crash, then you have to value yours the same as theirs. Um, so, you have banks now uh, devaluing these assets, which makes their capital much less, Which, uh, as, and as a result, the credit markets froze. So but the rule, the spark to this thing was this rule put out by the Bank for International Settlements. And I argue in the book that this was an intended
4: scenario. But again, why do they want to sink the U.S.? Is this just a
1: battle for the world US hegemony? Is- they want to sink the us because the us has been the icon the king the emperor of world finance uh, the dollar has been the reserve currency on planet earth for you know 40 years uh, when the united states went off the gold standard in 1971 and the gold standard was that central banks could turn dollars in for gold uh, up until 71 uh, we, you know we had been spending a lot of money on the vietnam war dollars everywhere Charlie De Gaulle was coming to, you know, going, you know, give me gold. Finally, Nixon went, no, that's it. But at that point, Richard, uh, a a rule, we basically enforced a rule that all oil had to be purchased in dollars. Right. All right. So now you've got uh, the central banks of the world holding dollars because everybody needs oil. And uh, it kind of extrapolated into other international trades. So the dollar becomes the world reserve currency. Um, uh, and and the Fed is controlling things, but but that's one country doing it. Now there's a, a an effort to have this be global, and to take the dollar off of its throne, um, and put the power of international finance into this bank in Basel, Switzerland. And this is very much going on as we speak.
4: Is this a um, if if I can uh, sort of identify two sort of battling world hegemonies? Let's say the House of Windsor, uh, the Anglo-American establishment, and the U.S. dollar uh, versus the Habsburgs and the Euro, or am I oversimplifying?
1: Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not. I'm familiar enough with the you know economic history of Europe to know that uh you know, the Rothschild Rockefeller banking interests got their fangs into Western Europe and into the United States uh into the nineteenth century and twentieth century. You know, these areas of the planet, Richard, are buried in debt. Uh uh a friend of mine in Taiwan got a copy of the book to some people in Beijing and he sent me an email and he went, You know, the Chinese government would like to talk to you about your solutions that you have in the book and uh, what you're saying there, I thought it was a joke, you know, I said, I have them fly me over business class and put me up in a nice hotel. I'll come next day, they'll fly any way you want, yada, yada. So um, I flew to Beijing some months ago and met with, you know, senior people in the Chinese government on this subject. Now, this this country is the major communist nation on planet Earth, and we could have a whole show or several on the human rights issues there. But from an economic point of view, the Rothschild-Rockefeller banking interest did not get their fangs into Beijing, although no. they're trying now.
4: They have their and, own bank.
1: And, 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 and so this country has got $3 trillion in reserve. And here we are, the beacon of free enterprise, We're are $14 trillion in debt. So, um, from, from that perspective, uh, yes. It, it, it's actually, I don't think you oversimplified it, it's simply a matter of... But the people running this show now want to consolidate power in one World bank and issue a world currency, which is happening, I repeat, uh, as we speak, called the SDR. Um, a lot of people talked about this Marrow. I think that was a red herring. Um, uh, there was an article, I think it was yesterday, it may have been the day before, uh, international press on the International Monetary Fund saying that the SDR needed to be the world currency and the dollar. Uh, should no longer be the world reserve currency a couple of months ago, Russia and China, pictures of Putin and Hu uh, Jintao shaking hands, agreeing not to use the dollar and to use their own currency. So uh, uh, the dethroning of the dollars, the world currency is is is
4: happening. Well, who would have thought the uh, the leadership in communist china and the uh, the leadership in the formerly uh, communist uh, Russia. Uh, actually, spearheading uh, or being the standard bearers for the sovereignty of the nation-state. Uh, what's the solution? Uh, I mean, can we forestall the the uh, the coming you know one-world currency, John, uh, or is it too late?
1: Well, it, 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 one, it's it's late. Uh, two, uh, you know, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come, or words to that effect, that I can't even remember who said it. Um, but. Um, look uh, there's a chapter in the book on solutions um you know from a from an individual perspective i'm a very strong uh, believer in 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 precious metals particularly silver um i think there's a, a a very strong upside to the silver market still from a public policy point of view um in the united states and this would be true i think as well in canada uh, people need to make their elected representatives and officials responsible the united states cut co- Congress. Obama signed this uh, agreement to establish the Financial Stability Board uh, in April of 2009. I've talked to members of Congress. They don't have a clue, Richard. They're they're, they're brain dead on this subject. Um, they need to uh, uh, approve this agreement or not. At least they need to review it uh, in the Senate and in the House. And and I underline and uh, put something in. Pl- assuming they approve the agreement, put something in place. Uh, along with other countries, Canada, Germany, Belgium, Switzerland, uh, of elected officials that oversee these international bankers. They, there needs to be checks and balances. There needs to be oversight. These guys cannot be flying into Basel, Switzerland, every uh, two months, the board of directors, uh, are making decisions behind closed doors without any oversight. So um, I think, uh, one, on a personal basis, Uh, you know, uh, uh, put some of your assets, a modest amount of your assets into precious metals on a public policy point of view, get control and oversight and checks and balances over these international bankers. All
4: right. Again, the book is Crisis by Design, The Untold Story of the Global Financial Coup. The website, JohnTrumanWolf.com. I'll link up to it on my site as well. Uh, John, thanks for this.
1: Well, uh, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: All right.
1: Bye-bye. All right.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
4: Joseph Farrell will check in in about 15 minutes' time to talk about Lyndon Baines Johnson and whether or not he was, in fact, behind the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Don't forget the Conspiracy Show coming to television, the world premiere, Friday, February the 18th. It's fast approaching. Vision TV, 11 p.m. Eastern. Two back-to-back half-hour episodes. UFO Disclosure, episode one. Episode 2 nine-eleven 9-11, Controlled Demolition. And, uh, and then Friday, February the 25th, two more episodes coming at you. So um, make it a date. All right. I didn't know that America had castles, uh, but they do. In fact, I guess all that it requires uh, for a building to be uh, to be considered a castle has to be fairly large, I would think, but it has to also have a parapet. And so, lovely Thornwood Castle. Uh, it is actually a castle, and it's in um, Washington, south of Tacoma, Washington, on a, a tract of about 100 acres, on the shore of American Lake. And it was actually, I've seen pictures of it. It's a beautiful, I mean, it doesn't look like a, a scary uh, place. You know, it looked like a beautiful home. 27,000 square feet. Uh, and it was the, uh, the setting for a Stephen King movie, or I guess it was a miniseries, made for television film, back in 2000, called Rose Red, about this intelligent, evil house that was killing its inhabitants and feeding on their life force and so forth. Anyway, it has quite a history. And a, um, an individual spent an entire evening there all alone. And she's going to tell us all about it, of course. She is our paranormal and supernatural investigator who joins us the second Sunday of every month, the author of over 40 books, including nine encycl- encyclopedias, hundreds of articles in print on uh, a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics. Of course, I'm referring to the one and only Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Rosemary, how are you?
6: I'm doing good, Richard. I'm uh, quite excited because I'm flying out to L.A. Uh, tomorrow for a week. I'm going to actually be in the sun for a change. We've had such a miserable winter here. You've
4: in- been snowed in in Connecticut, haven't oh, you? No,
6: it's been terrible this year. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to a little West Coast Activity. I've got uh, some investigations lined up, research conferences. I'm going to be out, out there for a whole week, and it's going to be a whirlwind.
4: Excellent. Well, you're heading the west coast, and I'm heading across the pond to the uh, the UK to interview uh, some vampire hunters and time travelers and uh, a werewolf tracker, Neil Arnold. So
6: yeah, that sounds pretty exciting too.
4: We'll have to do some shop talk when we when we both come back, and uh, well, you'll have you'll have some inve- new investigations to talk about uh, in March, but. Thornwood Castle, uh, what uh, what led you to... I mean, were you actually there all alone? Uh, I wh-
6: was. It's the only time in my entire investigative career that I have spent uh, an entire night alone in a haunted property. And as you were describing, it's it's a huge place. Um, it, it looks... It doesn't look like a European castle, but it's it's more like an English manor house with a parapet, and that's as you were saying qualifies it as a castle.
4: Yeah, well, it's sort and, of built during the Edwardian period, uh, early yeah. 1900s, and um, uh, you know has a wonderful history, but is just by all accounts um, has um, just about one ghost per every guest. It's, a, it's it's operated as a bed and breakfast now, correct?
6: It does, yes. Uh, It was built by a man named Chester Thorne, who had quite the magical touch with money. Uh, He made a lot of it, was a uh, business magnate in Tacoma. And uh, when he built the house, he imported a lot of materials uh, from England and Europe. And I think he brought some ghosts along with those materials. Oh, that's what happened. bought stained glass windows out of places. He imported an entire oak staircase from uh, an English uh, property and uh, some of those things uh, were centuries old and in fact elizabethan uh, era ghosts have been seen there uh, men and women in clothing dated to that period uh, so i think he actually brought some ghosts but some of them uh, have been added since then and he haunts the place himself in fact um, if you go there uh, as a bed and, and now that it's a bed and breakfast and you sleep in the chester thorn room uh, the lore has it that if you have any money problems, his ghost will come and help help you sort them out
4: ah so he 's a uh, he 's uh, a benevolent ghost
6: yes, uh, most of the activity at Thornwood Castle is benign. It can be a little creepy, especially when you 're there by yourself. I went there a couple of times, and uh, the first time was just to visit the property and meet the owners and um, I expressed an interest in uh, staying overnight, and uh, I didn't realize that they were going to arrange for me to be there all by myself. I mean, there weren't even any staff people on the premises.
4: My word.
6: Uh, and it, it, it was a little creepy because it's a big place. Uh, at its peak, it had 54 uh, rooms and 28 bedrooms and 22 bathrooms. Um, It doesn't operate as many bedrooms as the bed and breakfast today, but still, it's it's a huge place.
4: Did you stay in Chester's room?
6: I did not. Uh, They put me up in the uh, third floor in um, uh, one of the um, rooms that has some poltergeist activity in it. Uh, I didn't have any poltergeist activity in the bedroom, but in the middle of the night, uh, I could hear voices on the floor below me. It, was, it sounded like a group of men and women talking, and it's a very common phenomenon where you hear kind of murmuring and you can't make any, any words out. Um, and uh, going downstairs to investigate, then, you know, you, it sounded like it was coming from um, one particular room, which was the room belonging to Chester Thorne's daughter, Anna, who spent quite a bit of time in that room. And uh, you walk in and, of course, nothing, no sound, uh, no activity. But then when I would go away again and go back to another part of the house or back upstairs, the voices would would start up again. Um, That's very common uh, at at the castle. And uh, then there was a billiard playing ghost. Um, I, my room was just down the hall from a billiard room. And um, in the early morning hours, I heard footsteps come up the staircase. And I thought somebody from the staff was arriving. Um, and uh, I was in my room uh, getting ready to go downstairs uh, for breakfast. And I could hear the billiard ball smacking around on the table. So I went down, straight down the hall, because I was going to say good morning and uh, I looked in the billiard room, and there was nobody there. Uh, and in fact, the cue was laying on the table, uh, and the white ball was, was also on the billiard table, and that was it. And yet, I had distinctly heard the sounds of somebody playing pool.
4: My I went my. One
6: way in and out of that room. And uh, I did uh, confirm later that at the time that I heard that, there was still nobody in the house but me.
4: Wow. Any apparitions?
6: Uh, I did not see any apparitions myself, but many guests report that they have. There are diaries in every room in the house where people can record their experiences, and uh, people have seen apparitions of what appear to be staff people. Uh, There's a ghost of a little girl that haunts the property. She's believed to have drowned in the lake. It's one of those stories that... You can't find any historical reference for it seems to be more urban legend. Hmm. But yet it, there are bona fide apparitions associated with it.
4: Chester's daughter, uh, who inherited the house, had kind of a tragic uh, life. Uh Did she not shoot her first husband in the house in the eye or something? Uh
6: She did. She was... Uh, um deaf from scarlet fever but partially deaf she had to wear uh, a very large hearing aid and uh, she was very embarrassed by it so she kept to herself she didn't like to socially mingle but um, she caught her first husband having an affair with uh, with one of the maids actually caught them in the downstairs um, linen closet which is now part of a bathroom and she went and got a gun in the house and shot him, and shot him in the eye, didn't kill him. Um, but they were divorced, and she did remarry. Uh, and uh, there, for many years there has been an apparition of a man who was seen coming out of that room on the first floor, and uh, he crosses uh, into one of the uh, parlors and goes out through a wall. Some people think it's actually the second husband. Um, People who've seen the apparition in detail feel it matches photographs of him more than the first husband. But I feel it's the first husband because that's where the emotional tragedy is. Sure,
4: sure. So are people flocking to Thornwood now to stay there in the the chance that they might encounter a ghost?
6: It's still very popular. Ever since uh, Rose Red was filmed there and it got a lot of attention, uh, and it was haunted before Rose Red. Uh, that, that's been documented for quite some time.
4: But more since 2002, apparently.
6: Well, yes, because I think when people go with the ex- expectation or the hope that they're going to experience phenomena, they're, they're more likely to be aware of things that in the past uh, guests might have passed off to their imagination. Right. Uh, or, you know, they didn't believe in ghosts. So um, the diaries, of course, encourage people to record their activity uh, as well. I, I read all the diaries, and um, the, the setup in the place is that um, if anybody is nervous at, at night, because there are no staff people, they all go away, and even the owners don't live on the premises, um, there's a certain number that you can dial on the telephone, and someone will answer it and, um, and come if you need some help. Well, I read in one of the diaries that um the guests kind of got spooked in the middle of the night uh because they thought there were some ghosts around, called the phone number and nobody answered.
4: Oh, that's always the way, right? <laughs> so so did you get any sleep that night?
6: No. <laughs> were you
4: just wandering the wandering the castle all night looking and listening and
6: Well actually I did want to stay uh awake all night because um the, the one advantage to being there by myself was that if I did hear anything, like um, sounds of somebody walking around or voices, I knew that there wasn't anybody else present. So it couldn't be another guest or a staff person. And that's very rare to be in a place like that all, all by yourself. But it, it still was was very spooky
4: I'm sure I'm sure and so uh, aside from uh, you heard uh, the, the pool playing ghost and some uh, some um, whispering and just uh, dis- you know murmured conversations what else
6: well the gardens outside are uh, said to be haunted by fairies and I did see um, some I, I did go out and spend time in the in the garden right around dusk and that's the best time uh, according to folklore to to see fairies and I have on many other occasions seen uh, beings and balls of light that I think are are um, fairies and I did see those moving around in the garden um, the owners believe that the property is protected by higher spiritual beings uh, including angels and that uh, nothing bad can happen there there is activity but Uh, But it's all benign, nothing negative. I did have a very peaceful feeling in the garden, uh, and that may have been due to some spiritual presences there.
4: Would you go back again?
6: I definitely would. Uh, It's a beautiful place. It's a lovely place to stay, incredible history, well-documented haunting lore, and just about every single uh, room in, in the place, including all of the guest rooms, have histories of activity in them. There are uh, ghosts who like to rearrange uh, people's clothing and their suitcases. Um, people hear piano music. There's a piano downstairs, and there's phantom piano music. Uh, sometimes they hear what sounds like record, old record players in rooms, and there aren't any record players. Um, and people do see apparitions uh, in the hallway. You know, just fleeting glimpses of things, phantom footsteps. Quite a bit.
4: Thornwood Castle, south of Tacoma, Washington. And uh, I guess you could, they, do they have a website? You could go online and, and book a holiday there for, the, for those that are um, interested in a paranormal uh, sojourn?
6: Yes, you can. And they have pictures of all the guest rooms up as well as uh, a short history of the place as well.
4: Rosemary, always a delight. And uh, we'll check in with you uh, next month. Have a great trip to uh, California.
6: And you across the pond, Richard.
4: All right, talk soon. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, the website VisionaryLiving.com. Check out her bookstore. All right, LBJ and JFK,
3: when we return. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
4: Just when you think you've heard just about every possible theory as to who was involved in the conspiracy to kill Kennedy, was it Nikita Khrushchev? Was it the the white Russians? Was it some... Remnant of the Third Reich operating within the United States? Was it Oswald acting alone? Was it the Cubans? Was it an Algerian wet team? Was it a, uh, a South Vietnamese drug syndicate? Was it the limo driver? Uh, you know, I've I've um, I've done a number of shows on uh, on JFK, and it's just one of those. I mean, it's the crime of the century, and. I could probably do a show every week on JFK. Uh, that's, it's, it's just one of those fascinating areas. And uh, tonight, we're going to present another fascinating theory, and that is that LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, may have been involved in the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy, A Coalescence of Interests, is the brand-new book from Joseph Farrell, Oxford-educated, best-selling, investigative author, this time, of course, taking on the Kennedy assassination. His other books include uh, Roswell and the Reich, Nazi International, Reich of the Black Sun, The SS Brotherhood of the Bell, Secrets of the Unified Field, The Cosmic War, and, of course, the Giza uh, Death Star series, uh, including the Giza Death Star Giza Death Star Deployed, Giza Death Star Destroyed. Joseph Farrell, welcome at long last to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend?
5: Pretty good, Richard. Thank you for having me back, and congratulations to you on the new show.
4: Thank you, thank you. And congratulations to you on the uh, the new website. Uh, or, well, thank It's, you. <laughs> it's, it's certainly revamped. Uh, yeah, Giza, uh, give
5: us the website again here. Giza. It's uh, dot. GizaDeathStar.com, and and that's all one word, all lowercase.
4: And they can order the book uh, right from the website? Yep. GizaDeathStar.com. Giza, of course, like in the pyramid, G-I-Z-A. GizaDeathStar.com. And um, if you go to uh, RichardSarrett.com and uh, the homepage there, just click on Joseph's name under tonight's show, and it will take you right to the website. GizaDeathStar.com. All right. Let me just dive right in here, Joseph. Sure. Did Lyndon Baines Johnson have anything to do with the death of John F- the murder of John F. Kennedy?
5: Well, that's, that is the $64 trillion question. And in my opinion, at the minimum, Richard, we're looking at a case that if he were to go before a grand jury now, or even back then, at the minimum, I think you'd have to say that he's at least indictable as an accessory after the fact because of some of the patterns of, of behavior that he exhibited both prior to and, and after the assassination. And then, more importantly, uh, acting in his capacity as, as the chief executive to head off, essentially, any real bona fide criminal investigation of the of the murder, by either the state of Texas or, for that matter, by the federal government in the form of uh, any congressional investigation by forming the Warren Commission. And the subtitle of the book, A Coalescence of Interests, to me, Richard, is really represented by the seven commissioners that he appoints to the Warren Commission because if you look at their backgrounds carefully, each of them has some connection to the major interests that other assassination researchers have. Uncovered as having had some probable involvement in the actual planning and execution of the crime. So in that sense, then, we have to look at the first part of the question. Is Lyndon Johnson actually involved in the planning of the murder? And in point of fact, as I point out in the book, Johnson is intimately involved at least with Governor Connolly, if not with others, in the actual planning for the Texas trip to begin with. So you can actually make a case or argue a case that he may have been, at some level, involved in the actual planning of it.
4: There's a an iconic photo, really. That's uh, It could be just, you know, it's the blink of an eye, literally and yeah. and much has been has been made of it and, and 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 for those who don't recall it's i believe it's LBJ uh Lady Bird Johnson of course the, the first the soon to be first lady and poor distraught uh uh Jackie Kennedy
6: uh right.
4: just with a painful grimace on her face still you know wearing the the, the, um, the pink uh, suit with the blood spattered all over it making their way to the swearing in LBJ turns to his right, and there in the crowd, in a bow tie, is Congressman Albert Thomas, winking yes. winking yes. at LBJ. Yes. As if, way to go, you got what you wanted. Yep. Are we making That's... too much of that photograph, or, or is there something to it?
5: Well, I think there is something to it, uh, in the total context of, of the assassination itself. Albert Thomas was the chairman of the House Committee that oversaw the United States space program and therefore he was a key player in financing NASA and in particular the Apollo program. So and he was incidentally also kind of uh, let's put it this way he was a member of of the Johnson political machine inside of the state of Texas. They played for keeps, didn't they? They played dirty. Oh yes, they certainly did. They they most certainly did. And and this is a big machine we have to understand that in terms of the connections in in this crime there are certainly connections with congressman thomas because president kennedy had actually spoken that morning at a breakfast that was given in honor of the congressman so in other words you know even even in the crime itself there's a, there's a heavy irony that's that's taking place but the other part of this machine would be inclusive of of the big texas oil men, uh hl hunt and clint murchison and and people of this sort that were also heavy contributors to johnson and his camp- political campaigns and also to the campaigns political campaigns of uh... his fellow texan and a, another member of the johnson political machine which of course was was governor john Connolly. so yes i think that picture is very significant in the sense that that it is iconic, as you say it it's conveying that there's some sort of uh, internal or or uh, knowledge that both men have that if they're not involved or complicit, they are at least communicating the idea that okay, now we're in a position to do something that we want to do.
4: It's 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 hard to uh, to draw too many inferences from a photograph which is literally, you know, maybe 1/60th of a second. Right. But if you look at Congressman Thomas, he clearly looks to be quite pleased and this oh, is yes. just moments after Kennedy is, is announced to be dead. Yes. And you 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 contrast that with the look on Jackie's face. She just looks lost. She doesn't know where she is.
5: Yes, and, yes. Yes, quite so. Well, you know, the thing that Richard Hoagland and Mike Bearer point out in their book, Dark Mission, is that, that again, Thomas is a key, key member of Congress that is involved intimately with the funding of the space program that is overseeing several uh, defense-related contracts with the space program. So in other words, yes, there's, there's something going on here between Johnson and Thomas that is communicated in that very, very significant wink.
7: Is
4: it is it possible that uh, while Johnson may have been in fact protected by plausible deniability, uh, he had there were people behind him, part of this Texas machinery, yes. uh, political machinery, uh, that would know uh, with a wink of an eye, a tacit approval, uh, to get the job done, and Johnson could have been left out of it.
5: Oh, yes, that's certainly possible, and in fact, that's kind of the way I lean. I don't think that Lyndon Johnson, personally, was involved in the actual planning of the crime. He was, he was involved in the planning that set up the circumstances for the crime. But I do think that once he's in office, at least the case can be made, and it should be argued, that he in his action and behavior in the way that he saw to it that the interests that were involved in the crime were protected by representation on the Warren commission itself that to me is the first thing that argues that he's involved as an accessory after the fact in other words he's astute enough politically to assess the involved players and to make sure that he is is protecting the interests of the very people that put him into office, and and again, there you know I'm not arguing solely on that basis that that he's an accessory sure. after the fact. There are some other things that that he does as well, but that to me is kind of the Rosetta Stone that that unpacks or or unlocks that argument. Joseph P. Farrell,
4: author of LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy, a coalescence of interests. You can order the book right off his web star triple dot giza deathstar.com giza deathstar.com. uh i have to ask you about the um the uh the uh, the mistress uh madeline duncan brown yes lbj's um, mistress and uh she uh in one conversation revealed that um, i believe she was in 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 uh, dallas with him that day uh, or, I don't know, squirreled away in a, in another uh, hotel or something. But uh, mm-hmm. she confessed or claimed that um, LBJ was called away to a meeting uh, the day before, I believe it was. Uh, so it would have been the 21st uh, of uh, November. Right. And after he returned from that meeting, he said to her, that SOB, referring, referring to JFK, because we know there was no love lost between the two, that SOB is never going to embarrass me again, implying right. that the decision to take JFK out was was finalized, crystallized that very night. What are your right. thoughts on that?
5: Well, I do mention Madeleine Duncan Brown very briefly in my book. I don't go, to be quite honest with you, Richard, I don't go into her statements very extensively for the simple reason that many assassination researchers questioned some of her assertions and her assertions really are very very stunning because she does say this that recount this episode that you that you have just surveyed and she also later went on to say something else that after the president had been murdered she in her own words confronted lbj very directly and asked him if he knew who had done it or if he had had any involvement and she states that that uh, Lyndon Johnson told her that yes th- it was the big oil men that were involved with this and and did this and so on and so forth, and you know you have to you have to give due pause to to those statements, and I do recount them in the book, but i don't uh to be quite frank with you i don't place my argument or any weight of it on her statements because, again, there are assassination researchers that have dug very carefully and in a detailed fashion into her whereabouts and and Lyndon Johnson's comings and goings on the 21st of, of November, the day before the assassination. It should be noted, though, in that connection that on the night before the assassination, Johnson and Kennedy had a big argument as to where Governor Connolly was going to ride. Johnson wanted Governor Connolly to ride with him in his limousine, and Kennedy insisted that he ride up front in the front of the motorcade in the presidential limousine.
4: Interesting. All right, we'll delve into that a little bit further when we come back. Joseph P. Farrell, author of LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy. questioned comments, get on board, 416-360-0740. Toll free from just about anywhere, Maine to Minnesota, Ontario to the Carolinas, 866-740-4740.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
2: We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you, people, sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colours, creeds, we're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube, you eat like the tube, you raise your children like the tube, you even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of this second time speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our
7: childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers and brainwashed by all the rules. Open and behind the
3: scenes. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sennett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Joseph Farrell is with us
4: discussing LBJ and JFK. Did LBJ participate in the conspiracy to kill Kennedy? Did he have knowledge after the facts? That is the uh, the subject of uh, Joseph's new book, and um, you know, it's uh, there's so many. You, you talk about a coalescence of interests. I mean, I used to joke that the only person who didn't have a gun that day was Connolly. Uh, you've got um, you've got the White Russians, you know, Jack Ruby. Uh, you've got uh, the you know the 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 Soviets with Khrushchev. Uh, you've got. Oswald, you've got, um, you know, the the possibility that the the Nazis, uh, you know, Walter Dornberger, who uh, apparently um, uh, was instrumental in getting Oswald uh, sort of a safe house in Dallas, uh, Mm -hmm. for the former uh, who worked for uh, for Bell uh, Bell Helicopter. Mm -hmm. Um, It's such, you know, you've got the you've got the CIA, you've got the mafia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Federal Reserve bankers. Mm-hmm. It just it's so muddled. I mean, how do you wade through this and make sense of it?
5: Well, that's a good question, and you know that's one reason I actually wrote the book because I, I've been following the Kennedy assassination for a number of years, and one of the things that struck me, Richard, in reading other assassination researchers is that they're all making a good case for this or that particular group. Being involved somehow in the commission of that crime, the trouble was, and is, I think, that you can argue that they're all involved, and that's that's where we get into the real problem. And the way I, I try and make sense of it initially is, if you look at all those people that you are in groups that you've just named, they are all at some point extremely influential in the deep politics or the parapolitical structure of the United States of America. So in other words, they're sort of, so to speak, the hidden government or, or the secret government or the establishment, if you will. And Kennedy, by the actions that he undertook during his administration, managed to threaten the interests of just about all of them. So they all have plausible motive to be involved. And, and what I attempt to do in the book, therefore, is is to examine you know, the three standard uh, questions that any criminal investigation should answer who has the means who has the motive and who has the opportunity to commit a crime but the structure richard for me of the actual crime itself begins to emerge when you consider the fact that number one you have to run oswald and and create a legend for oswald in other words there has to be someone capable at a deep level of maintaining his defection to the Soviet Union, then bringing him back to this country, <coughs> excuse me, and placing him in all the circles that he's in, and then the third level of this crime is maintaining the cover-up.
4: You okay there, Joseph? Do you need to? Yeah,
5: I'm sorry. That's I've... okay. No, no, no. <laughs> I've that's I've all had right.
4: Had a bad sinus all day. So... That's all right. If you need some water, let me know, and we, I'll, I can. Uh... I can uh, tap dance until you get back if you need to. Um, no, no I,
5: that's okay. I've already taken my swig of water. <laughs> Excellent.
4: Okay. Well, yeah, you mentioned Oswald, and uh-huh. um, he um, obviously figures into uh, uh, into this story while he's in Russia. Ties in with uh, with Gary Powers, the the, the uh, downed YouTube spy pilot. Yeah. Um, now let's go over that story because. Um, Powers was he aware that Oswald ratted him out? I mean, that's the theory, right? That Oswald was there to rat out Gary Powers and 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 uh, embarrass the Americans and scuttle peace talks between Khrushchev and Kennedy.
5: Well, yes, Powers himself had always later maintained that he felt that there was indeed some sort of connection between Lee Harvey Oswald's defection, or so-called defection, I guess we should say, to the Soviet Union and the fact that his U-2 was supposedly shot down over the Soviet Union. But as I point out in the book, there are even some very, very suspicious circumstances concerning that whole flight itself. For one thing, Powers was allowed to carry identification, which under normal U-2 flight security protocols would never have been allowed. So, in other words, there's something fishy about the flight right from the start, and Powers, as a pilot for the CIA, would have known the normal security protocols. So he knew, even before he got onto that plane, that this was a different mission, and that, uh, in my opinion, he knew that he may be going down over the Soviet Union. The other thing that Powers always maintained is that In his opinion, the flight was deliberately sabotaged, and and I explore a number of scenarios for that in, uh, in the book. But he always maintained, Richard, that there was some sort of connection between Oswald being there. And the reason why is that Oswald, when he was stationed at Atsugi Air Force Base in Japan, did have a classified clearance to operate the radars that were tracking U-2 flights over the Soviet Union and over Communist China. So, in other words, there is even another connection between Oswald and and the whole U-2 affair.
4: So, clearly, Oswald is a CIA asset. He's sent over uh, to Russia under the guise that he is defecting. He helps bring down uh, uh, Gary Power's U-2 plane. Uh, I mean yes. the the re- end result of that was that it, it um that uh, it it prevented Kennedy and Khrushchev from from uh from meeting and and maybe you know thawing out the cold war correct
5: Yes yes that that was the end result although I do want to I do want to mention that I don't myself ever assign a particular intelligence agency to Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay. He could have been a CIA asset, but in my opinion, he may have been something else. He may have been run by the Office of Naval Intelligence under a particular program that they were running to, to create false defectors to the Soviet Union. That's a possibility.
4: And then they bring him and, back in, right? They bring him back in. Isn't there a canceled, isn't there a canceled check in one of the Warren Commission reports uh, that, that, that shows that they paid, money was paid in order to bring Oswald back into the U.S. from Russia?
5: Yes, I believe that's correct. I believe that's correct. He did get funds of some sort to come back to this country. Now, that raises the interesting question that this would indicate that he has maintained some sort of intelligence connection, a human on-the-ground connection, while he's in the Soviet Union. And, Richard, it's here that the murkiest connection comes out, because at this time in history, the the on-the-ground the majority of the on-the-ground human intelligence that was being operated inside the Soviet Union was not being operated by the CIA. It was being operated by the West German Bundesnachrichtendienst, which, of course, was the old leftover of, of World War II Nazi military intelligence mm. in the Eastern Front. So Oswald, in my opinion, if anyone is handling him on a on a steady basis, <clears throat> excuse me, inside the Soviet Union at this time, it's going to be that group of people acting, so to speak, under the auspices or or for the CIA or whatever American intelligence agency actually ran him over there. So you've got yet another murky connection that's represented by Oswald's defection.
4: All right, let's grab a quick call here. Uh, sure. Dana is in Southbury, Connecticut. Welcome to the Conspiracy hey, Show, Dana. Hi,
2: Richard. Hi, Joseph. Hello. Um yeah i have a question about uh, malcolm wallace uh l b j s henchman um yes. his the only fingerprint lifted from the sixth floor um you know book bookstore um was malcolm wallace's fingerprint was that mm-hmm. possibly done as a, a uh was he probably a backup patsy if case Oswald flew the coop that day or Oh thought? wow,
5: what the <laughs> That's that's a really good question and in fact it, it's it's one of the questions, you know, there's so many with the Kennedy assassination no one researcher can handle them all in one book and I don't even go into that in the in the book itself. That's a fairly recent uh discovery within assassination research. But it's a good question and I'm going to crawl way out on a limb and speculate a little bit on, in an answer to it. I think there's a possibility that if it doesn't represent the creation of a second patsy, as, as you're suggesting, that the other possibility is this, and that is they have planted a fingerprint or put a, a fingerprint on that is going to possibly link back to Lyndon Johnson himself. In other words, someone is creating leverage over President Johnson to make good and sure that he follows the game plan once he's put into office.
2: Oh, I got you. Okay, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Very good, sir. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for the great question.
4: All right, thank you, uh, Dana, in Connecticut, checking in there. All right, we'll uh, come back. I want to talk to you about... I guess it was Johnson's lawyer. Uh Uh-huh. Clark. Uh um, Uh-huh. There was a book that came out a few years ago, Barr McClellan, who was uh, the father of White House Press Secretary Scott McClellan. Mm -hmm. And... uh, who was also part of the same law firm that served the Johnson, uh, that served President Johnson. And uh, one of the partners, I guess the senior partner, Clark, apparently had this meeting with Johnson, and Johnson gave him a document, which could be the smoking gun, and I'll uh, discuss that with you as well. I don't know if you uh, discussed that at all or, or or got into that in your research, but we'll find out. Joseph Farrell, author of LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740.
3: The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. To reach Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740.
4: Here's an interesting little piece of uh, uh, data uh, that could provide further insight as to LBJ's connection with the JFK assassination. Edward A. Clark was the head of uh, Johnson's private and business legal team. He was also the former ambassador to uh, Australia. And um, supposedly uh, told one of the partners in the law firm, and this eventually got down uh, to a Barr McClellan, who worked for the same law firm at one point, and he's the father of the former White House Press Secretary, Scott McClellan. Anyway, uh, Edward Clark said that he had a meeting uh, with Johnson. And uh, in the meeting, it was in 1961, it was on Johnson's ranch outside of uh, Johnson City in Texas. Johnson gave Clark a document that may have been used by the assassin. In, in, the, uh, in this testimony, Johnson uh, supposedly grabs Clark and he says, that envelope in the car, he uh, put it to good use. And he turns, he puts his arm across Clark's shoulders, pulling him along, and uh, the two walked towards the convertible. As they drove back to the ranch, Clark opened the envelope. It contained the policy manual for protection of the president. Mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I don't get into that, but it is interesting that you raise this issue because you'll note in the book that I, I detail a number of security issues protocol violations on the part of the Secret Service during the whole Dallas episode.
4: Like changing the and, parade route <laughs>
5: last minute? Yeah, Well, yes, the changing the parade route so that, so that the presidential motorcade has to slow down below the normal speed of 40 miles per hour, which is the normal speed for a presidential motorcade through a city the use of of an open car, the stationing of of no secret service agents on the roofs of of the surrounding buildings, and so on. There are a number of these these types of very egregious uh, violations of normal security procedure. And the point is here, Richard, that these types of violations, you can understand maybe one, but when you pile up a bunch of them, you're dealing with a pattern. And that can only come from somewhere in the executive branch itself, That has the authority to make those sorts of changes. And we go back to the fact that both Lyndon Johnson and John Connolly were intimately involved in the planning of the Texas trip. And again, I think you can make the, the plausible case, or at least argue a case, that at some level they're involved, therefore, in the in the commission of the crime. So it doesn't surprise me that these other things are now coming to light at all.
4: Well, you, uh, the, the parade route, you had the, the mayor at the time, Earl Cabell,
5: Yes. <laughs> uh, his his
4: brother was uh, General Charles Cabal, former okay. CIA that was fired by Kennedy.
5: Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's rather
4: glaring, you know. They just put that out there and do with it what you will, but I don't know. That sounds <laughs> kind of fishy to me.
5: Well, the whole thing is fishy. I mean, at every turn that you take in the investigation of this crime, you have more and more connections that that mean that this crime can hardly have been the accidental lone nut affair that the Warren Commission itself makes it out to be. And let's remember Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover, in in the process of the Warren Commission's so-called investigation, they're taking great steps to engineer the finding ahead of time. So, in other words, it's not even a proper criminal investigation, Richard. They've already determined the result is going to be that Oswald is is the so-called lone nut assassin. So, it, it's not it's not a, a genuine criminal investigation. Well, that's a, a that popular
4: again, a popular pattern through history when they yes. apprehend the uh, they've charged and apprehended the uh, assailant before. Uh, or they've convicted him in the press, rather, before he's even uh, uh, apprehended. Was there not a, a newspaper headline uh, in New Zealand? A newspaper in New Zealand. <laughs> Oswald had been uh, basically uh, arraigned, and meanwhile, he hasn't even been picked up at the uh, the, the, the movie theater yet.
5: Yeah, this, this is the most interesting thing, and it, it's an episode that's actually recounted in Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, but it's based on, on a real event. And what happened was uh, an American Air Force colonel by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Fletcher Prouty had been dispatched by his commanding officer to be the military escort for a group of dignitaries visiting Antarctica. On the way back, he flew through Christchurch, New Zealand, where he picked up a a flash-extra issue of the paper that had a full-page biography on lee harvey oswald as the assassin of john kennedy but the problem here richard is as you say that this extra edition of the newspaper appears prior to oswald even being charged with the crime in dallas
4: (laughs) my word and and prouty was sent on this wild goose chase meanwhile should he not have been in dallas on the ground helping to protect the president
5: Exactly. That would have been one of his normal duties, and, and again, you know, it's recounted in, in the uh, JFK movie by Oliver Stone. He was conveniently ordered out of, of the country itself during the time of the assassination. So again, you've got another little piece of evidence that that is arguing very conclusively that this is a very, very detailed uh plan that was put into action in Dallas and and almost no aspect of it was overlooked.
4: All right, let's uh, say hello to James in Barry. Good morning, James. Welcome to the conspiracy show.
5: Hello guys, how are you doing today?
4: Well thank you. Hi James. I um I I've studied a quite a
8: bit about this, and I'm kind of a conspiracy history buff, but uh, I want to focus on one thing I can lend, I think, some perspective on, that this was absolutely a conspiracy. Sure. uh, And not a wacko lone gunman, and that is, I'm a former world-class target rifle shooter, shot for Team Canada for 13 years. It's all verifiable, Uh what I'm about to tell you, but at one point, I was in the top five in the world in single-bolt action, target shooting up to a 1,000 yards.
5: Uh-huh. I'm a world
8: record holder, won gold medals for Canada, silver medals. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I trained very uh, uh, detailed and specifically for many, many years, trained in Fort Benning, Georgia with the USAMU, and, uh, you know, quite proficient in ballistics of single-bolt action rifles. And I can tell you unequivocally, I couldn't have made those shots.
5: Of course. And, 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 and I'm glad and you it, raised that point because the Warren Commission, had several FBI uh, sharpshooters try to reduplicate the feat that they say that Oswald accomplished from that six floor story uh, sniper 's nest, and we should point out in addition to this that the alleged assassination weapon itself that that italian six point five manliker carcano was precisely a single bolt action rifle, and it had a misaligned telescopic sight on top of, you know, on top of everything else, yep. and then to sweeten the pot just a little bit more, when the Dallas sheriff's deputies first arrived up on the sixth floor and investigated that so-called sniper's nest, the rifle that they report recovering there was not an Italian 6.5 Mannlicher Carcano, the rifle that they say that they found was a 7.6 German Mauser. Yes. And that is even more interesting, and I don't even mention this in the book, but it, that that caliber of the Mauser was not the weapon that German soldiers used during World War II. It was the caliber of a weapon that the Mauser Company allowed Argentina to produce under license.
8: Yes. Very very accurate. And whether it was that Mauser or the Carcano, the Carcano was certainly much more difficult to open and sure. close. But in those eight seconds, I, I shot a Mauser-type um, uh, much grave target rifle. I shot a Lee-Enfield. I've shot Anschutz, all different kinds of target rifles. Those FBI agents that attempted it, we used to train them in Fort Benning, and they were good, but not at Olympic, world-class, world championship right. level. And uh, they couldn't do it. I'm telling you, uh, it, it, it's not possible um, to have ha- happened. There was multiple gunmen. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't do it the way they, they, the Warren Commission said. You would have two or three people um, right. triangulating, triangulating their shots. Um, I'm also military trained. I was trained in Staffordshire, England, with the special forces in England for two years. So I know a little bit about uh, that kind of uh, the, the component of this. And this was absolutely a. a a coordinated hit.
4: Okay, James, listen, Uh, I I hate to cut you short. I got to run, got to break. We'll come back and continue to talk about uh, LBJ and JFK with Joseph
0: Farrell. Back with more. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
4: All right, uh, Joseph, let's talk about tampering of evidence and LBJ's uh, involvement there. Right. Uh, what happened with the limousine after the uh, after the fact?
5: Well, that, that is a very clear case of, of tampering with the evidence. Lyndon Johnson, Richard, ordered that limousine to be shipped to Detroit and completely cleaned out, gutted, quite literally, and cleaned out, and everything refit. And, of course, this is clear tampering with the evidence because there have been uh, reports all along in the assassination that there were bullet nicks on the windshield, that there were a number of bullets that struck the frame around the windshield, and so on and so forth, which, would, of course, would have provided extremely valuable forensic evidence as to where the shots were coming from, and so on and so forth. Not Ship to, mention, to Detroit,
4: eh? That's interesting. Yeah. Why it, Detroit? Pardon me? Why Detroit?
5: I, I believe it's because there that that the Ford Motor Company had built that uh, presidential limousine. I think that's the reason why. Uh, I may be mistaken that it was shipped to Detroit. I'm going off off of my memory here, but I, if I recall correctly, that's where it was shipped.
4: Well, it makes sense, but, and I'll tell you why. I have um, uh, a regular contributor to the program who's uh-huh. a JFK assassination uh, researcher, uh, Nelson Thal, who told me, I won't name a name here, but that uh, the person that was in charge of that the the uh, the cleanup of that limo was a certain American businessman who was known for his revival of the Chrysler Corporation in the 1980s, and that's all I'm going to say. Uh-huh. Uh, and for his good work, he was in fact uh, awarded, uh, you know, that he was given that plum position at Ford later. Of course, he first he was at Ford, and then uh, then he went on to uh, to Chrysler. Right. So that's interesting that you mentioned Detroit. That's all I'm saying.
5: Uh Uh-huh. Well, you know, regardless of how how we look at it or where it was shipped, the point of fact is this order came from President Lyndon Johnson himself, and therefore it means we have a clear case of his direct involvement with tampering with crucial evidence in the crime. And that, of course, is in itself a crime, and given the circumstances of the crime, it would certainly... Be used by a normal prosecutor in a grand jury, at least to move for an indictment as accessory after the fact.
4: Uh, Walt in London, good morning. He wants to talk about the limo as well. Hey, hey,
9: Walt. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have, uh, I got a comment on Lee Harvey Oswald and a question about the LBJ. Uh, yes, go ahead. Involvement. Yes, uh, a couple hours uh, within a couple hours after he was arrested, Lee Harvey Oswald the. The Dallas Police Department performed what was called a wax paraffin test or a yes. gunpowder residue test. Yes. And he passed uh, for firing a rifle. There was no residue on his cheeks, so uh, really, that's the end of the case against him because yes. he has now uh, been proven not to fire a rifle that day. That's right. So I don't know why we're still talking about him. He, he's well,
5: <laughs> we're right. we're talking about him because essentially he was he was the chosen patsy, you know, to use his own uh, phrase to describe himself. We're talking about him to this day because he's still the the official assassination committer as far as the Warren Commission is is concerned. Well, and the we have to. By you know. Well, yes, you know, of course, nobody ever you know, says that though. <laughs> yeah, the 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 problem here is is that. That he is the designated assassin in the official cover-up story, so that's the reason we're still talking about him. But I agree with you; there was there was never any sufficient evidence against the man on the basis of the paraffin test.
9: Yes, and Jim Jim Garrison, the only one to ever investigate it, has said that uh, he thought that he was in there, and had been told to uh, protect the president, and that he really is probably an American hero if the truth would ever come out. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I, I realize that that was sure. Garrison's take, and and uh, it may be actually true that that's the case. You know, we're never probably going to know.
4: That's often uh, how patsies are set up. There's a. It's reported uh, that Timothy McVeigh also believed that he was part of some anti-terrorist sting operation in Oklahoma right. City. So right. there's a common thread that runs uh, through this. Walton London, thank you for the yes, call.
9: Wait, can I ask about LBJ, please? Sure. Now there was reports that LBJ was as seen to hit the floor of his limousine before the shots were fired, and there was supposedly some film footage or a photograph of the limousine that LBJ was in without him sitting up in the limousine and down on the floor. Did you find any truth to that or any information about that? Great question.
5: There there are reports, and they tend to vary. In some cases, you have his Secret Service agents pushing him to the floor and so on and so forth. But one of the most interesting things that I ran into, Walt, when I was investigating this, mm-hmm. is that Senator Ralph Yarborough, who was riding with him in the limousine, reported that Johnson was... Throughout the entire motorcade, you know, was had some sort of walkie talkie device pressed up to his ear. Really? Oh yes. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So you would think you would think that would be a little suspicious when you're, you know, in a motorcade you're you're supposed to be waving at people, but here's Lyndon Johnson, according to Senator Yarborough, <laughs> listening to a walkie talkie.
4: All right. Walt, thank you for that. Good questions. One body two, maybe three caskets, and at least two autopsies.
5: (laughs) Yeah, that is an aspect of the story that was researched by, in my opinion, one of the top-notch assassination researchers by the name of David Lifton. And I, I basically kind of survey his research. But Lifton came to the conclusion that there had to have been some sort of shenanigans between Dallas and Bethesda because look what we have richard in dallas we have one set of wounds being described by the doctors at parkland hospital by the time we get to bethesda we have a very different set of wounds being described by the doctors at at bethesda naval hospital in dallas president kennedy is in a normal bronze casket but when he is taken off of air force one when it lands in maryland he is in a shipping casket, which is an entirely different affair. So at some point, the body has been moved from one casket into the other. And on and on we could go. So you have two caskets. You even have a, a bit of a, a shell game going on with two different ambulances that are supposedly taking the body to Bethesda. So And all of this, incidentally, again, if you examine the statements of the witnesses that, that are reproduced in Lifton's research that I refer to in the book, All of this is being done under the direction of Lyndon Johnson. So again, you've got another little indicator that this man is at least somehow involved in the shenanigans concerning the doctoring of evidence, and that therefore makes him an accessory after the fact.
4: All right, Oliver is in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Oliver.
5: Good morning. How are you?
4: Well, thank you. Your question or comment for Joseph Farrell.
5: Okay. Can you hear me all right?
4: We, you're coming in loud and clear, my friend.
5: Oh, good. Yep, okay, I can hear fine. you, Oliver. Uh, one of the
2: things that always puzzles me, and I've never heard anyone make a comment on it, uh, Life Magazine's very first coverage on it quotes Connolly's first comments when the bullets go off. And uh, I don't remember precisely what they said because this is many years ago. I was 17 years old, but I can remember sitting bolt upright in our dining room, saying, uh, realizing that Connolly was making a comment that suggested that he was expecting this to happen. Yes. And it it went something like, oh, no, they're going to shoot me, too. Well, his, oh, no, they're going to shoot me, too, immediately says that he was aware they were going to shoot somebody. And he was hoping his, that it his, wasn't himself, but there wouldn't be any two.
5: Yes, I, I know the comment you're referring to. His comment, if I recall correctly, his comment was, oh my God, they're going to kill us all.
2: That's exactly it. Okay. All well, right.
5: Now, yes. now, now let, let, let me outline why that's significant and why your interpretation may indeed be correct. Yes. In a court of law, what that statement is is an utterance that is made under a situation or a circumstance where it is likely that the utterance is true in other words great weight evidentially would be given on a statement like that in a court of law now when Connolly is saying this one interpretation is of course you know he's afraid and and is thinking that there is an assassination out and they're all targeting Everybody. All right. The other way of interpreting it is that he had some knowledge that there was a conspiracy in place and that they were going to all be taken out. So, yes, I I totally agree with you. And in fact, I cover that statement in the book.
2: Okay. I have one other question. Uh, I barely could hear the AM transmission uh, down here in Scranton. So I don't even know who I'm talking to or what the name of the book is. (laughs) But sure
4: like <laughs> okay. All right, it, it's Joseph Farrell, Joseph Farrell, and it's LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy. And you can order that right off the website, GizaDeathStar.com. Giza, G-I-Z-A, or I should say Z-A, G-I-Z-A, Deathstar, Star, GizaDeathStar.com. Did you get okay, that, uh, I, Oliver? How are you
2: spelling Joseph Farrell?
4: Farrell is F-A-R-R-E-L-L. Joseph Farrell.
2: Well, thank you very much. Um,
5: thank you, sir.
2: I'm just coming in from Boston after a weekend's work. I'm sure glad I couldn't get any FM.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so are we,
4: Oliver, and I hope you'll join us again. All right. Uh, the aforementioned JFK assassination researcher, media scientist Nelson Thal joins us. Hey, Nelson, how you doing, buddy?
7: Hey, good to hear. Great show. Hi, Nelson. So, hi, how are you? Pretty good. Yeah, Richard, um, also in that picture uh, with the wink um, is Jack Valenti in charge of the press corps which is really interesting because, of course, he's born in Houston, Texas, of Italian ancestry. And you know what happened to him since. He took over Hollywood. So he was right there, part of the cover-up. He was in charge of the press corps. So he was an important guy in the whole weaving of the story, and weaving of the whole story was done by him.
4: Interesting. You know, you look at the list of the people that were there in Dallas on that day. It's incredible. I mean, who... It's probably easier to put together a list of people who weren't there. Exactly.
7: Yeah, the, the interesting thing is uh, uh, Skolnick, Sherman Skolnick, the great researcher, um, this said that uh, what was interesting to in him was when he found out that Rabin was in... Dallas on November 22nd and the oh, french intelligence word. were they uh Sandburg, i mean every intelligence agency knew about it and and that's the funny thing about it all
4: and uh, and, and and nixon apparently was there which is interesting yes. because when they asked nixon years later where were you when, when kennedy was shot he said uh i don't remember
7: yeah and of course they all gathered together at Murchison, murchison's house uh, the night before and partied, and Nixon was there, and Johnson, they were all there. And I guess the only guy who wasn't there was connolly He's the only one we can say was, probably everybody knew about it but Conley, is what I would say.
4: What are your thoughts on that, uh, in terms of Conley's involvement, uh, Joseph?
5: Well, again, I I have mixed feelings about it, but again, I my gut-level intuition tells me he's at least an accessory after the fact, and he may have been involved at some level in knowledge of the crime he he certainly in the planning of the trip when he was briefed by Kennedy's uh, chief secret service agent connolly went out of his way to insist on the luncheon changes on the changes in the motorcade route and so on and so forth so in other words Connolly is acting like someone that is either actively involved in planning the crime or under orders to get certain details of the motorcade and the luncheon in place so that the crime can be committed so uh... i'm i'm very suspicious of of governor Connolly. well you know Connolly
7: did at the hospital admit that he heard the shot and that means that he did go. He went. He went against the single bullet theory with his observation, with his witnessing, because yes. if you hear a shot, you're definitely not hit with it. You never hear yes. the shot. You're hit with it because the right. bullet hits you before the sound gets to you. By the time the sound gets to your ear, you're you're not in a position to hear anything. But he right. admits he heard the first shot. Right. So he wasn't hit by it. So he sort of went against the Warren Commission and was outcast them to a to great degree.
4: Great questions and comments, Nelson. Thank you, buddy. Thanks a lot. All right. Uh, Joseph, let's talk about uh, uh, the dead witnesses. Uh You know, whenever something like this happens, there's always a death list. But in this case, I mean, there are some... It's a pretty long list. Can we go through (laughs) some of those names, some of their names and, 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 and how they met their end?
5: Well, the first thing that's interesting about the dead witnesses, Richard, is that there's a pattern, a statistical pattern to their deaths in that they tend to die off in greater numbers right around the times of various investigations into the assassination. So in other words, you find a cluster of them dying during the Warren Commission investigation, then you'll find another cluster dying during the garrison investigation, and yet another cluster of them dying in, in the House uh, assassinations investigations in the 1970s. So there's, that's the first thing. But let's look at a couple that I think are, are very interesting. One of them is, of course, the death of of the mafia chief, Sam Giancana, in, in Chicago. And he was found dead in his home, apparently having been cooking a meal for himself. He was found dead, having been shot in the head. And then there were six shots, I think it was six, something like that, five or six shots that were fired into his skull around his mouth. So in other words, and the, the interesting thing about this particular, uh, witness death is that he was scheduled to testify for the House Assassinations Committee. The alarm on his house had not been tripped. So in other words, whoever shot him, Sam Giancana, knew this person and trusted him and let him into the house while he was fixing his meal. So that's, that's one, to me, one very interesting death because and you find this over and over again <coughs> excuse me because it indicates that in my mind each of the coalescing interests in the architecture of this conspiracy is tasked with cleaning up their own loose ends in other words we have here a typical mafia style hit against the man who is possibly going to talk and you get that little message with with the shots around the mouth so in other words you have each little group kind of of watching its own reservation to make sure that that none of these witnesses talk and are responsible for cleaning these things up. The other interesting uh, dead witness that I'd like to mention would be George de DeMorenschild. And this is a very, very interesting character, and in, in my opinion, one of the most crucial and central characters in the assassination. This man was a member of the white Russian community in Dallas. He was uh, an oil geologist, very familiar with the uh, pardon me with the Murchisons and the hunts and so on. He was found supposedly dead of a suicide by shotgun blast
4: ah <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes
5: yeah, to his head. Now, if you can just you know imagine yourself trying to commit suicide with a shotgun <laughs> to to the head before you go to testify to the House Assassinations Committee, you know, it's it, you'd have to be pulling the trigger with your toe. <laughs>
4: In other words, yes, he was suicided, as they
5: say. He was suicided. Yes, exactly.
4: There's also the interesting case of uh, New York Socialite uh, game show contestant Dorothy May Kilgallen.
5: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, re- I even remember her. I'm old enough to remember her. <laughs> what's my line? <laughs> yeah, what's my line? Well, Dorothy Kilgallen was... Another one of those very strange witness deaths, she had actually gone to Dallas, Richard, to interview Jack Ruby, which she did. And from there, she went to New Orleans and spent a number of days in New Orleans tracing down things, leads and so on, that apparently she had learned from Jack Ruby. Now, you have to remember, this is before the garrison investigation. She comes back to New York, and she makes statements to various people and associates that she now knew enough to blow the lid off of the conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. And, of course, she ends up dead, supposedly of an overdose of barbiturates that she took with alcohol. And, you know, to me, I've always found that extremely suspicious because she wasn't a stupid woman and and knew better than to take barbiturates with alcohol.
4: Right, right. Very interesting. What did Ruby tell her, do you think?
5: Well, Ruby always maintained, and I, I mentioned these statements in the book, Ruby always maintained that the assassination was much, much larger than anyone could imagine. And he was also very explicit and clear in mentioning Lyndon Johnson's involvement. But one of the things that I find very peculiar in some of his statements is that he mentions and and comes right out and says that Lyndon Johnson is a fascist. And I think that perhaps what what Ruby may have told Kilgallen then is about that network of anti-Castro Cubans and about some of the, the very shady goings-on and connections between that community in, in New Orleans and... Deep dark connections from New Orleans to Latin America, where you have the involvement of those of those post-war Nazis. I, I think that may be ultimately what got Dorothy Kilgallen killed.
4: You also write that she may have uncovered evidence that there were at least two OsWalds.
5: Oh yes, yeah. This this I think is definitely one of the things that she may have stumbled onto because there are there are reports of OsWalds in New Orleans trying to buy cars while Oswald himself is in the Soviet Union, or at least someone that is calling himself Lee Harvey Oswald is in the Soviet Union. So in other words, there are, there's, there's two people at the point that Oswald is in the Soviet Union, and one of these people is in New Orleans trying to buy cars and, and trucks for the Fair Play for, for Cuba Committee. So, you know, again, this may be another thing that Kilgallen stumbled onto and may have been tipped off by by Jack Ruby.
4: And then, supposedly, she gives her notes to her best friend, to Mrs. Earl Smith, and three days later, after Kilgallen's death, she dies of a brain hemorrhage. So. Yep. <laughs> and the list goes on. All right, Joseph, stay, stay put. We'll come back. A few more questions remain. LBJ and the conspiracy to kill Kennedy, a coalescence of interests, and you can order your copy right now. Just visit the website, gizadeathstar.com, G-I-Z-A, gizadeathstar.com. Back with more of my conversation with Joseph P. Farrell. Stay with us.
3: Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. A.M. 740. Joseph Farrell stays with us. A few
4: moments remain. Talking about LBJ and the conspiracy to kill Kennedy. Uh, We hear over and over again that uh, the assassination, this wasn't just merely the murder of a president. This was a coup d'etat. Was it?
5: Was it really? I think it was, because you have a number of factors, and, and that's one thing I, I went out of the way to research in, in the book, is is the actual pattern of coup coups d'etat and, and to see if, in fact, the assassination fulfilled the requirements. And if you look closely at it, it certainly does. Because one of the first things that is mentioned by uh, Edward Lutvach, who's the scholar of, of coup d'etat that I cite, is that you have to have a suspension of normal security procedures in order for a coup to work. And this is clearly in evidence in, in the Kennedy assassination. The second thing that he mentions that you have to have is... And almost immediate or as quickly as you can do so, you have to take possession of the symbols and centers of authority. And this certainly is also the case with Lyndon Johnson getting back to the White House and and quite literally moving into the White House that evening and literally throwing the furniture, uh, the president's furniture, and firing his secretary and telling Jackie Kennedy to get out of the White House within two days so in other words you know he he fulfills the the requirements of a coup d'etat in that sense he fulfills the requirement of getting back to air force 1 quickly in other words he doesn't even bother to to take his own aircraft he takes possession of air force 1 within a couple of hours of of the assassination itself so that fulfills the requirement and the final thing you know i could go on and on but the final thing i need to mention is that one of the requirements of a coup d'etat is to remove any potential centers of resistance. And this is clearly done by the fact that Kennedy's entire cabinet, with the exception of his brother, Robert Kennedy, uh, the attorney general of the United States, the entire Kennedy cabinet is en route at that time from Hawaii to Japan when the president is assassinated, and they have to turn around and and fly back to Hawaii. So you don't even have any of the cabinet in Washington at the time that the assassination occurs. And, And we could go on and on.
4: All right, let's uh, shuffle off to buffalo and say hello to Frank. Good morning, Frank. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show.
8: Uh good morning. Um great another great show, Richard.
4: Appreciate um, it. Thank you.
8: I'd like to ask your your guest um what complicity do the do the media have in helping to cover um this assassination, I know we're talking about, and other assassinations though, especially with the lone nut theory. It's always the three names. Lee Harvey Oswald, Mark David Chapman, you know right uh in and, and on and on, where I'm sure these people weren't known by those three names before the assassination have you mm-hmm. in your research have you found any anything about the media helping to uh
2: to cover this up
5: well no, that's, that's certainly an aspect of the assassination that needs to be addressed in a scholarly fashion. And in fact, it's, it's the one area of the assassination that no one, in my opinion, has ever really done an adequate job or even thought to do. But in terms of, of the pattern that you see in the media investigating the assassination, certainly you have a a preponderance of, of the television media maintaining the status quo, in other words, maintaining the, the official version that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone nut assassin. And every now and then you'll see some sort of ridiculous special on uh, the Discovery Channel or the Learning Channel or what have you where they attempt by various methods to demonstrate the authenticity of, of the Warren report and some of the things that it says. You have, on the other hand, you have within uh, radio, and certainly now with the rise of the Internet, you have an entirely different media where the assassination research is, I think, adequately covered and, and the official status quo is, is being adequately questioned. So it's, it's a very good question that you raise, and, and it's something that I think eventually assassination researchers should look into.
4: Thank you for the call, Frank. Well, as an example, uh, Dan Rather was um, in uh, Daily Plaza that day, and uh, it was certainly uh, one that stood up and said uh, it happened just the way the Warren Commission said it did, and voila, he is the CBS anchor for many, many years.
5: Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh,
4: John is in Toronto. Good morning, John. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show.
10: Yeah, good morning, and uh, you're giving me whole things that I haven't thought about for a while. Dan Rather actually said on the air... Uh, he was doing a radio report that uh, Kennedy fell uh, forward as opposed yes. to falling back. Right. So I think he was in on the whole thing, and he always seemed like a crooked kind of a guy. Now, the other thing I wanted to tell you, there's a couple of things. Uh, Mark Furman has a book coming out now that uh, confirms the lone assassin theory because he says there's a crease in the chrome windshield header that proves the deflection of the magic bullet. So there's another book to be looking at. I guess some people are desperate for money. Now The main (laughs) main reason I called you was uh, I was wondering where was the blood when Oswald was shot. I don't believe he was shot and killed because uh, what was presented was probably the first conspiracy of all these conspiracies that have happened since, like the moonwalk and all Mm -hmm. of these other things, Mm -hmm. is that people see something on TV in black and white, and you Mm -hmm. see a guy grimace. When he gets shot, just like we grimaced when we were playing cowboys and Indians, but where was the blood? If you get shot in the gut, there's going to be a lot of blood. This is
4: something but, else that uh, our our good friend Nelson Thal, who was with us uh, moments ago uh, had pointed out to me that he had uh, he actually met the photographer that took uh, that was present during the prison uh, transfer, and that was the thing that occurred to him was there was no blood, and it was a, it was a gut yes. shot right right.
10: And why was he wearing a sweater anyway? That sweater would have hit a blood bag that they use in the movies.
4: Interesting. Joseph, your
5: thoughts? (laughs) Excuse me. That, That, again, is, you know, there are so many unanswered, unresolved questions to this. But, yes, that is certainly one of the problems with the whole scenario. We are looking at, in my opinion, a bit of theater. Because Ruby, you know, he could have been firing blanks and if that's the case then then we're looking at a bit of theater on Oswald's part as well but yet if that is the case if we if we grant the hypothesis that this is a man firing blanks then at some point between the jail and Parkland Hospital Oswald is seriously wounded and fatally wounded so someone else has got to be doing this and then ruby of course takes the fall for the crime and is found guilty for it so If we're going to go that route, then we're dealing with a very complex conspiracy just with that crime.
4: Indeed. Uh, John, thank you for that. Uh, Parting question. If this was a coup Mm d'etat, who took over? Who's now running the country?
5: Well, that's another good question, but in a certain sense, you have the status quo running the country, getting rid of an administration that is making and taking all the steps to dismantle that hidden political power structure. Ah,
4: I see. Okay. So it was a return to the status quo.
5: It was a return to the status quo, yes, exactly.
4: All right. Uh, Again, LBJ and the conspiracy to kill Kennedy, and uh, that is available at GizaDeathStar.com, GizaDeathStar.com, Joseph Farrell. Wow, always a pleasure. Time goes by too quickly. It's been great to reconnect with you and get you back on the show.
5: Well, thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me back on, and and good luck on the new venture.
4: My pleasure. Okay, thank you. We'll talk again.
5: All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.
4: All right, uh, let me uh, give you a couple of programming notes. Next week on the show, the co-author of one of the, uh, the seminal works on the whole Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, Left at Eastgate... Peter Robbins will be uh, with Victor Vigiani and myself. Also, Christian Wild has some wild medical stories for you involving adult bone marrow stem cells. Not embryonic stem cells. That's a very controversial area that has thus far proven to be a dead end medically. It certainly has tremendous moral difficulties. But we're talking about Adult stem cells that are in your that's in your bone marrow. This is being used in trial studies to reverse heart disease, cure diabetes, cure cerebral palsy. It's a remarkable story. Christian Wilde will be here to tell about it. And then, at this time, I'll be uh, on my way to the UK to interview another Rendlesham Forest, uh, eyewitness the original whistleblower, Larry Warren for the TV show and I hope you'll check out the TV show Friday, Feb 18th 11pm on Vision TV Rogers in the Toronto area Channel 60 uh, on Bell I believe it's 261 check your local listing my thanks to Dan Ellison move over Aphrodite I'm coming home Good night.